Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast.
the implicit kinds of uh, memory, you infer it because you're kind of faster performance. This would be done by priming or conditioning. So I don't know, if I say something about Halloween, it'd be more, you pick up on you know, jack lanterns and black cats faster. I have procedural knowledge like motor skills. Uh, this is mostly dealt with in the basal ganglia and the cerebellar regions. Um, so you can't say how you know how to ride a bike, but you're just better at it the next time you do it. That is implicit procedural knowledge. Explicit or declarative knowledge is conscious. So these are semantic or, or, semantic or factual uh, information. So who was the first president? George Washington. There we go. <laughs> um, and this is damage with the lesion to the left frontotemporal polar region. You have episodic memory, which is personal and autobiographical. This is damage usually the right frontotemporal parietal region. So that time, your fifth birthday, when there was a clown and you were scared of it. Or, or you loved it. You. Okay. So, remember that scene you saw a second ago? What do you remember? Shout it out. Trumpet, saxophone, guitar, <laughs> tennis shoes, hot top shoes. There was a martini glass. There was a big stock display. I give great short-term There was a right? piano. There was a coffee mug with a little bit of steam coming out of it. There was one girl. Okay. <laughs> very, very and good. I remember all of those things too. So that was an example of free recall. So I just say, what do you remember? And you come back with what you remember. Another way to test it is with cued recall. So I give you part of the answer. So do anything to start with a P? You just said it. Here's a piano. A piano, yes. There is an airplane. And it started with a B. No, oh, I just a said bicycle. a bicycle. Is it there? G. A ghost. I'm just kidding. Guitar. Mm -hmm. You said. Um, another way to assess memory is with recognition. So did you see any of these items? Anything? Taxi. Yeah. The ice cream was in there. Was the alarm clock in there? Yeah, it was. Okay. Alarm. Any confabulation? Anybody saying something wasn't there? The dog was not there. <laughs> Lamp. So you're doing really good. Y'all have great short-term memories. <laughs> okay, so a list of things that were there. Ready? This is also going to be a test. A shoe, a motorcycle, record player, Coke bottle, computer, heart, taxi, car, woman, house. One more time. Here's a this list of things for the picture. A shoe, a motorcycle, record player, coke bottle, computer, heart, taxi, car, woman, house. Okay. So when you're remembering things from the list, there's something called the serial position effect. And they have the privacy effect is your tendency to remember things at the beginning of the list, and the recency effect, which are things uh, tendency to remember things at the end of the sequence. And the thought behind this is that they rely on two different kinds of memory. So, what do you remember from the list? Shut it up. Tennis shoe, motorcycle, record player, coke bottle, computer, heart, house, house, taxi, car. They wow, really good. Very, very good. Yeah, so we got, so you did the middle, so you were good in there. Uh, but yeah, so motorcycle, 
woman in the house. So we did see a little bit of the privacy and recency, uh, but are really good with your short-term memory. So you also have the intermediate. They usually do test this on a group of people they remember either the beginning of the list or the middle of the list. And tend to forget things in the middle. Um, so if you're doing one of these um, interviews with uh, for grad school, and you want to be either the first person the professor saw or the last person they saw, if you're in the middle, we're probably going to forget you. Um, anyway. Okay, so what is a memory? Um, the term applied to a memory is called an engram. It's a pattern of cell firing that makes up a memory. It's distributed. So it is what you see is stored kind of in the visual cortex, what you hear, auditory cortex, what you felt, somatosensory, how you feel about it, uh, amygdala. So any kind of experience, so again, fifth birthday party with a clown, you know, did you see the clown, did you hear him? you know, do something, blowing a trumpet, you taste the cake. So this is the coherent um, memory and it's all kind of distributed around everywhere in the cortex. So it's not just the one cell, it's everything. So you have this kind of distributed activity. So hippocampal, hippocampal and around uh, complex helps to kind of establish a directory. So it binds all this different information into one coherent engram. And it kind of helps you go search for it. So how are memories made? Um, Hebbian learning, so this is Donald Hebb over here. And I don't know if you've heard the phrase, but neurons that fire together wire together. Um, so if one neuron fires, the next one fires, and you do that frequently over time, then those two will um, kind of have, they'll bind closer together. So put more uh, kind of scientifically, you have this temporal coherence of neural activity then a set of simultaneously active and reciprocally interconnected neurons produces a record that can be used for subsequent reactivation of the entire response set in response to activation of one of its components. So it kind of, when all these neurons are firing together at the same time, they kind of again form this engram. They've done really cool studies with mice where they inject them with tracer and they can put them through a, a maze and they can see which cells are firing. And they can go back later and they can stimulate one part of that network of cells. And you stimulate one and the rest of the network will then fire as they're kind of remembering the whole thing based on the one cue of the firing. So it's pretty interesting what they can do. So this um, occurs as a, um, because of long-term long potentiation. So what this does, it encourages more receptors in the postnet neuron and the presynaptic neuron releases more neurotransmitter, uh, usually glutamate. And when this happens, so there's more neurotransmitter going out from cell A, cell B has more receptors. And what happens is it kind of makes them bind more strongly so that you need less activity from cell A to make cell B um, fire. What happens when you forget is that these connections are not strengthened. Uh, so neurons that fire apart wire apart. Um, there's also, there's a thing called targeted forgetting that happens when you sleep. So your kind of brain goes through and removes all the stuff it thinks that you don't need, but you might actually need. <laughs> uh, so if you have tenuous connections that are not reinforced and they are removed, uh, it kind of helps you to remove the unimportant information. So if you did study really hard, the information's gone, the test the next day. <laughs> so study hard. Um, so why is learning memory so difficult? Well, there's a limited number of neurons, and they're already occupied with stuff, information that you've known before. 
So to form new information, you have to write on top of that or be integrated into this whole scaffold, this network that's already there. So uh, to encode and access new information and experiences, you have these fragile and sparse linkages that have to be established, nurtured, and inserted into this matrix of existing information. So that's really difficult. So how do you insert new information into this existing matrix? So we use mnemonics that help. Um, this is a really uh, common one called the method of loci um, or the memory palace. I don't know if you watched The Mentalist, he talks about his memory palace. Uh, so the first um, that they've seen written about this was by Cicero in ancient Greece. So people have used it for a long time. And this helps you use contextual anchors. So as Cicero is growing up, and this was his place in Greece, and he goes through every day, this is his house, he walks down the stairs to go up to the market and back, whatever. So this is a really well-known place for him. So you could pick your house or your parents' house or whatever, and you try to um, attach information to places around so things that you know well. So we'll do an experiment, our demonstration. So let's remember the first four elements of the periodic table. Y'all know this, right? No? No information? Great. Okay. So the first one is hydrogen. So the sun is made up of mostly hydrogen. So what you can do is envision the sun coming up from over the stairs. Right? Number one. Two is helium. Okay. What is helium? A balloon. So you can imagine a balloon tied to this ledge over here. So one, hydrogen, the sun's coming up. Two, helium, the balloon on the side that you're walking down stairs. Three is lithium. So you can imagine some lithium batteries rolling down the stairs. Um, four is beryllium. So you can imagine, I don't know, some smashed berries in the wall here. So you walk through your memory palace to remember this sequence. So hydrogen is the sun over the stairs. Two is helium, the balloon at the ledge. Three, lithium, batteries rolling down the stairs. And four is beryllium, smashed berries in the wall. There will be a test later. <laughs> Got it? Okay, so again, why is uh, memory and learning so difficult? So the amount of information you could possibly learn is boundless. So your brain has to protect itself, so you're not just constantly remembering everything and you're kind of overwhelmed. So there's two filters. The first is the attentional system. We discussed this last week. It helps to select only behaviorally relevant information for further consideration. And then you have the limbic system. So this is where you kind of has to be motivationally relevant to you. And so it is first stored in the limbic system, kind of transient connections. You don't want to change too much about the way it's stored because you don't know if it's going to be really important yet. So it comes in, it's kind of transiently stored in the limbic system. It allows the information to come in for associative readjustment. So is this important to you? How is it related to you? Why is it important? Um, and then once you decide, either implicitly or explicitly, that it is really important to you, then it can um, compete for storage in order that the fittest memories survive. Um, and what is fit uh, depends on kind of your emotional uh, salience. Um, so this why forgetting is easy of uh, the periodic tables, but that really embarrassing thing that happened to you in grade school, it still comes up and makes you cringe because of the limbic system. So the periodic table is like, that's not important. How embarrassed I was, apparently was really important. <laughs> Okay, so why does the limbic system play such a big role? Well, um, the answer is evolution. Uh, well, one of the answers that we think. So uh, memory probably started 
as a function of recalling contingencies to help you eat and not giddy. So it's really important to know where to get the food and to avoid the saber-toothed cats um, and to you know, avoid getting hurt or eaten. But then as we kind of evolved, um, then your memory started expanding beyond the immediate survival. But it kind of built on to the scaffold that was already there, which was the limbic system. So again, uh, at first, the initially fragile sparse linkages have a neural pattern in the limbic system, and it's necessary for maintaining and coherent retrieval of that information, as you just kind of learn it. How does this happen? This is a slide from our limbic system round. So if you remember the pipette circuit, um, that starts in the cibiculum here in the hippocampus, goes up to the fornix, mammillary bodies, the thalamus, and the cingulate gyrus. For the cingulate gyrus, you go one of two places. One is back down to the hippocampus, interrhinal cortex, the dentate gyrus, and the cibiculum. So it kind of reverberates through here. <clears throat> Once it goes to the cingulate gyrus, you can also go to the prefrontal cortex, um, where you can include memories with your thoughts and your decision and your decision making. So the last time I ate at this restaurant, was it good or was it not? And you're trying to decide what to have for dinner. So the prefrontal lobes is, are really important for memory. Um, it has uh, it helps to reconstruct the context and the temporal order of things that happened in a memory. Online manipulation and encoding and retrievals. This is the working memory. So if I ask you to do a mental math or something. Uh, associative uh, search of the internal data stores and also provides context to keep the reconstructed memory within the bounds of possibility. So you're like, where did I leave my keys last? Well, I saw them on the table, but then I went driving, so I must have had them after that. So it kind of sets it bounds to guide the search. So if you have damage to the frontal lobes, it obviously undermines all these things. So you're not as good at encoding or retrieving the information. The linkages between that information, uh, existing information aren't as good. Um, it takes you longer to search the stores. And then it um, increases the tendency to confabulate, so to make up something that didn't actually happen. So, as you learn something, the information moves from relying on the limbic system to being stored, I guess, in, in all the other places, associated with cortex, cortices and stuff. Um, so the frontal lobes help to kind of access that. So again, the frontal lobes are really important for retrieving the old memories because it has will initiation, so you've had to voluntarily want to recall. Of information and to select the right information from competing alternatives. Did I see my keys on the table or on the desk or on my backpack? And then to kind of do the post retrieval monitoring process. So, again, like, well, I saw them on the table, but then I drove, so maybe that's not my correct memory. So, there are different kinds of amnesias. You have retrograde amnesia, which is the inability to retrieve information that was stored prior uh, to the onset of the amnesia. So this might be due to loss of information. So Alzheimer's, the information is just gone. Or you lose the ability to retrieve the information. So it's there, you just don't have access to it. And this is usually associated with temporal polar regions. So temporal pole is at the very front of the temporal lobe. Um, so when this is damaged, you have, you have trouble kind of accessing the information that's stored. You also have anterior grade amnesia which is the inability to acquire new information. Uh, as we talked about the PES circuit, hippocampus is really important for consolidating and encoding the information to move it out of working memory to long-term memory. 
So the most famous case of this was HM, and we talked about him in a previous round. He had head trauma and seizures, and so um, started to remove his hippocampus. Did you see that picture? And the seizures um, went down, they disappeared, but he was unable to form long-term memories. However, his short-term working memory was still intact, so he could remember things for 15 minutes by repeating in his head, but then it just didn't go anywhere. He also had intact implicit memory, so procedural uh, motor knowledge, um, which is in the basic ganglion in the cerebellum, was not affected by uh, the hippocampus removal. So it's a difference between knowing that and knowing how. Okay, so as I told you, I'd test you. What is the first element on the periodic table? Hydrogen. Hydrogen. And why do you remember that? The sun. The sun. What was the second one? Helium. Because of the balloon. Third one? Lithium. Because of the batteries. I went up too fast. That's the hardest one. And the fourth is beryllium. Because of the berries smashed on the wall. So this is a way to incorporate new information to your existing scaffold. Okay. So, if you have trouble with memory, what can you do to treat it? Um, obviously here, we're uh, really into neurofeedback. Um, so there are some standardized neurofeedback treatment protocols that are used in general. Um, some of these are focused on rewarding alpha, specifically the upper alpha, over the sensory motor strip. Um, the sensory motor rhythm, 12 to 15 is encouraged. They train up the SMR rhythm and train down theta. They train down beta. And they found, they've done experiments on this and found better acute recall performance and semantic working memory. They've also done um, protocols where you increase low beta and decrease beta and high beta. And they found um, improved working memory, which is great. However, um, as we know, there may be many reasons why memory is um, not working well. So we don't do the standardized protocols. We do the EEG brain map and testing and look at the whole brain. And we do individualized neurofeedback protocols based on the brain maps. So we want, if there's any accesses, we want to train those accesses down, whatever they are. Um, and also we want to increase connectivity between the frontal regions and the temporal lobes, but also that just depends on what their brain is telling us. So where is the connectivity uh, need to be improved? Another service that we offer is the Violite, which is photobiomodulation. I said that you put it on your head, you go home and do it for a few minutes every day. And basically it works to stimulate mitochondrial respiration um, and the uh, synthesis of ATP. And there's been a lot of experiments showing improved memory and motor control um, with this as well. So there are very lots of options for helping you to improve your memory. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.